a deeper look, exploring what works and what doesn't in development and the changes we can make together to turn ideas into action. Hello, welcome to a deeper look podcast. This is Patrick Fine. I'm CEO of FHI360, and I'm joined today by Heather Tallis, Global Managing Director and Lead Scientist for Strategy Innovation for the Nature Conservancy, the world's largest environmental organization. Heather, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Patrick. It's great to be here. Listeners, Heather reached out to me a couple of weeks ago and noted that in previous podcasts, we had not been dealing with the issue of environment and conservation and asked why. And she was absolutely correct that it has been a giant gap in our discussions. We first talked about the SDGs two years ago. We didn't have an episode that featured conservation, environment, climate. Last year, we talked about crisis response. We did talk about the impacts of climate change in driving humanitarian crisis. Mm -hmm. And this year, we're talking about the darker side of development. And we did not have an episode on climate and environment and conservation uh, built into our schedule. But when I heard from Heather, (laughs) I realized what a giant gap that was. So thank you, Heather. Now Heather is with us today, and we're going to delve into the issue of environment, of climate, and how it relates to overall development and development trends. It's a perfect episode as we look at some of the downsides to development. As our listeners know that this year we're dealing with the darker side of development, which is the contradictions, the unintended consequences, and the paradoxes that are created by our efforts to build a better world. So Heather reaching out is a good example of how leaving a comment (laughs) and getting in touch with us and sharing your views, your critique of the podcast, your ideas about future themes or topics that we should be dealing with is important. We pay attention to it. Now, Heather's a scientific leader. She started as a marine biologist. She's now at the forefront of science and conservation, and she is a champion for integrated approaches to development. She's the founder and chairs the Bridge Collaborative, which aims to drive a fundamental shift in how we think, plan, and fund across sectors to make bigger change faster. And I want to start, Heather, by asking you a question that has been nagging at me for many years, which is, our model of development is based on economic growth. It's aimed at increasing people's standard of living so they have healthier, more prosperous lives. And that's really an aspiration that we see people around the world sharing. Yet that model of development is based on constant growth. And so my question is, Is our approach to development itself at odds with preserving a healthy planet? That's a nice, easy question to start (laughs) with, Patrick. Thank you. (laughs) 
So I don't think that economic growth in our current model or our idea of development is at odds with a healthy planet. And I'll tell you why. We actually just did a study this last year uh, that was published uh, in Frontiers in Ecology and Environment with one of our great colleagues, Steve Pulaski at the University of Minnesota. He's an economist. And together we ran some global systems models that asked exactly this question. We often assume a trade-off, right, from our experiences so far that either GDP growth globally or human population growth need to give in some way for the environment to stabilize or recover. Mm -hmm. Or we assume, say, at a household level or even at a national level that you might put environment second or need to wait to work on the environment to allow economic growth or poverty alleviation. For example, why are people going to care about the environment when they don't know where their next meal is going to come from? So we assume this trade-off, but there hasn't really been a hard look without that assumption at what's possible in the next, say, 50 years. Well, and I often hear that trade-off framed in terms of sustainable development. Mm -hmm. So what is sustainable in terms of sustaining the natural resources necessary to support a higher living standards? Mm -hmm. And what is sustainable in terms of our use of non-renewable resources? Yeah, I think those are the right questions to ask. And I think the clear answer is we can do a lot better for the environment while reaching expected kinds of growth in the economy and population. So we can't have an uninhabited earth, but we can do a lot better for nature while doing better for people. And I think that things like an energy transition are great examples of that, where we have fuel sources that are now equally cost effective, where we have technologies that can really come online rapidly, that can allow us to continue to grow cities and to have transportation and options, while at the same time reducing greenhouse gas emissions and air pollution that equally damages people. So that's on the energy side. And renewable energy is a good example of new technologies that are sustainable in this context and increasingly accessible. And what we see in many developing countries is that they're leapfrogging to those renewable energy sources without going through the fossil fuel energy sources because it's more cost effective for them to do so. And ultimately, they're better off doing so in terms of protecting their environment. Are there other examples outside of the renewable energy realm? So I think there's another interesting example that relates to agriculture and energy. I'm going to keep it in there just mm -hmm. because it's all intertwined. <laughs> 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 and so we have made a lot of advances in sustainable agriculture, especially in best management practices like cover crops or crop rotations that allow soil to remain healthier longer and actually produce nutritious food and profitable yields longer mm -hmm. that are not more costly to farmers, right? Once adopted over, say, a five-year time period, they're even more profitable. So that's clear. We have clear evidence of those kinds of engagements, but that's not just good for the agricultural outcomes. Some of those activities, by keeping soil in place, help the surrounding environment, sure. for example, freshwater systems, but also other sectors of society. So there's great examples of reservoirs for power production or for irrigation 
silting in much faster than expected because of land use change around the reservoir. Mm -hmm. And so by adopting those agricultural management practices that are more sustainable for the farmer themselves, you can actually have benefits both for the environment and for another sector, energy, or back to agriculture itself. Right, food production, yeah. food security. Right. So that would be the ultimate objective, right? To have systems that are good for the environment mm -hmm. and provide, the, in this case, the energy or the nourishment that people need to have healthy lives. Mm -hmm. Now, you started to mention a study that you all recently did that looked at some of the perceived trade-offs between protecting the environment and raising living standards. Can you say more about that? Yeah, so we looked at whether it was possible in 2050, so way out on the horizon, to meet business as usual expectations for economic growth, population growth, food, water, and energy demands, and do better for the environment. And looking at the projected increase in population between now and 2050, so 11 yes. billion people. Yes. We used the most recent UN estimate, which is more around 10. Okay. But yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and something like a 300% growth in GDP between now and then, and equivalent 50-ish percent growth in food and water demands as you know, both the population grows and wealth increases, so consumption right. goes up. Right. So Standards we left all up. of yeah. that alone. We mm -hmm. said, okay, let's assume we don't have to give. What can we do differently in how we develop that would allow the environment and what people get out of the environment to be better? And so we looked at basic things, approaches to conservation that we have now, ramped up. So these would not be overnight easy to do things, but they are things like a fuel transition in the economy. There are things like sustainably fishing fisheries, which okay. we have policy to so, do now. So one is moving to renewable energy. Mm -hmm. Is oh. it very difficult to get fishing communities, well, nations, but then fishing communities to adopt those practices? I think it's variable, and we're going to get to the edge of my fisheries expertise. <laughs> Wait, you're a marine biologist. I know, but now I work on integrating development <laughs> and conservation. <laughs> But I know there are good examples where communities drive those kinds of more sustainable practices themselves. So we have good examples from the Southwest Pacific and from Eastern Africa, where there are community-based entry points into fishing that are strengthened and empowered through changing institutions and governance and capacity so that the communities become the entry point into the local fishery. So that's a bottom-up kind yes. of policymaking and development. And it's often paired with a top-down support for that mechanism to be what's legal. All right, so, so far you're talking about the brighter side of development, <laughs> about the potential that exists for us to both protect the planet and to raise living standards in a way that some observers have doubted. Can you talk about types of development efforts that you've seen that are well-intentioned but are negatively impacting the environment? Yes, there are many. We could talk about those all day. <laughs> <laughs> but the reason I think they're really relevant, especially to this audience, is because they so often don't stop with the environmental damage. That environmental damage usually comes back to development in one way or another and causes a development challenge. So one of my favorite examples that I learned about a couple of years ago is this well-intentioned um, set of programs globally now to distribute malaria bed nets, a very, very effective health solution that's really lowered malaria risk for a lot of people in a lot of countries. Right. 
great approach, great health outcomes. There's a 50% decrease in malaria deaths, and the insecticide-treated bed nets has been probably the key intervention in driving that decrease. Which is amazing. And a lot of malaria bed nets distributed to a lot of communities ends up meaning free fishing nets in some cases. Mm-hmm. So it's now been documented, there was a report that just came out a couple months ago that in 26 countries, there's been observations of people using malaria bed nets for fishing. And you can understand why it's an available resource in some contexts where there's a lot of distribution. And the problem on the environment side is that those bed nets have really small holes, right? They're meant to keep mosquitoes out. Right. So you can imagine they're really good at catching fish. They catch everything. They catch everything. including baby fish, which are meant to grow up and sustain a fishery. And so if you catch all the fish in the fishery, pretty quickly the population of fish crashes. Mm -hmm. The people fishing for those fish are usually doing it for income or their own nutrition. And so now you've undermined the resource that's getting those people food on the table or money in their pockets and damaging another aspect of potential development. Right. So what's the answer to that? Besides educating people not to use the mosquito nets as fishing nets. Well, that is part of the answer, right? And targeting distribution so you're not overflowing a particular community with nets. So they're really valuing that resource and using it for what it's meant to be used for. In this case, I think this is an important lesson for the environment side as well, where To me, a a big solution to this is looking at a set of problems in a community collectively at the beginning when you're choosing a solution and thinking about the full set of both options, solutions that could come from the health sector or the environment sector or another part of development, and the full set of consequences. So this takes us back to having integrated approaches when you plan out programs. How often do you see environmental considerations being integrated into the planning for achieving economic growth or goals or health goals or education goals? Honestly, not very often. And what can we do to change that? So we could do a lot of things. I think we've made a lot of progress in just the idea that the environment matters. Right? Mm-hmm. We have the sustainable development goals, even though maybe people don't always focus on the environmental underpinning of those goals. <laughs> but it's there in a pretty they prominent call, way. They are called sustainable. I know, exactly. So you'd think it might be one of the first things people think of. But easy to understand, it's not always there. But it's there as a frame. But when people go to do the work, when people fund what they hope to see in terms of impact, when they construct teams, we go to what we know. And what we know is silos. And so there's a lot that could be done to break silos in terms of leadership, sort of requiring a different approach to problem solving. Mm -hmm. Funders obviously can incentivize a different kind of product, right? Or a team that's empowered to see a fuller part of the picture from the beginning. And teams themselves, you know, can think about their networks differently. This is something we've seen be really powerful Can in the last year. Can you give an year. example of that? Yeah. So with the Bridge Collaborative that we started to bring these communities together, we often hold even very short convenings where we just have unusual people together in the room. 
And it can literally take one conversation for people to make a connection about work that they have going on, where they can see now a different path forward or one person at least they can talk to about an aspect they thought might be important, but they couldn't act on. Right. So even just happy hours or, you know, side events at major global convenings where it's usually preaching to the choir, you can invite intentionally other voices in and start a very quick expansion of people's networks. I suspect that a big part of this is just helping people see things differently and to consider aspects that they just don't normally look at. Mm -hmm. Because there's a kind of contradiction here. On one hand, I think most people understand the importance of protecting the environment. They have at least a ground level awareness Mm -hmm. of the important to have a clean, a healthy environment. At the same time, many of those people, if their task is to design a malaria program, they're going to think in a pretty narrow way about how do we reduce transmission of malaria Mm -hmm. in this geography and it just may not occur to them that there are environmental factors that need to be taken into account. Absolutely. Yeah, I'll give another example where that really played out very clearly for me in the last year. And this is also an example of how if you expand the network, even one click, Mm -hmm. um, you can really change the outcomes. So we had a chance this year to work with BRAC in Bangladesh in the Cox's Bazaar region as part of the humanitarian response that's going on there. Which is where the Rohingya refugees have come in to Bangladesh from Myanmar. Exactly, at a massive scale. 700,000, I think, in Cox's Bazaar. In the main camp, that's right. right. So a very extreme situation. Um, The first place you'd make the argument that people's basic needs need to be met first. Right. Right. And so that's what we've seen in the incredible positive response that has happened so far. And yet environment, for a lot of justifiable reasons, wasn't part of the full conversation as the response came to be. Mm -hmm. And that's now led to a major challenge already less than a year after the response started. So this is a common situation in humanitarian response, as I understand now. There's no energy plan. Right. In place for in like the initial fuel. response for fuel, for cooking, mm-hmm. for household use. And so 700,000 people are left to harvest fuel wood from the surrounding forest, which is also the primary resource for 80% of the local host community for the same fuel. So now you have very intense pressure on a natural resource, on the environment, that in less than a year is depleted. And so now you have a new city worth of people with very, very low access to any fuel supply. And this is now the primary, a primary source of social tension between the the host community and the refugees. Right. And it's also increasing the risk of gender-based violence because women have to go farther away from the camps to collect fuel wood because the resource is so depleted. And so a primary issue of concern for the original response security is now threatened by environmental decline. And what is the response to that challenge? So the positive opportunity we saw here is that conservationists are really good at sustainably managing forests. 
right? And so we can introduce some really basic recommendations for how to do tree replanting mm -hmm. and how to manage fuel wood collection from the remaining forests in ways that will allow the resource to last longer and to recover. In the near term, we can also think of creative solutions like how to sustainably harvest from other parts of the forest with local community engagement to provide a near-term fuel wood sort of gap right. closure. And that came to be, those recommendations became clear because we were able to take you know, three experts from sort of reforestation and forest management from other parts of the world and bring them into the Cox's Bazaar situation to meet with the local response teams in the time when they're thinking about their response and, and how to change it in the next year. I wonder to what extent will we as a development community or as an environment community be able to take a lesson like that, which is pretty obvious, and translate it into better practice in the future. So for example, if you're working in a crisis setting, there is such a sense of urgency mm -hmm. to meet basic demands for food, for sanitation, or just the basic needs of individuals that other obvious requirements like having a continuing supply of fuel get put on the back burner until that becomes a crisis. And so you wind up moving from crisis mm -hmm. to crisis. And I just wonder, how do we take that kind of experience, which is not unique, mm -hmm. but then not repeat it? Yeah, well, I think there are some possibilities with some pretty simple solutions, like embedding someone with environmental expertise in the initial humanitarian response. Because if nobody's there that's thinking about that, no one's going to come up with a solution that gets rid of the looming next crisis. Right. And that would be an example where if you had had, say, people experienced in forest management, they could have worked with both the host community and the incoming refugees to work out practices that mm -hmm. would have served everybody in the long run. And the short run. And, and the short run. Absolutely. Right. So one of the things that I'm taking away from this conversation is we think about what are the paradoxes in development. That one of the paradoxes is we know from our experience that development challenges require multifaceted solutions. That health program that doesn't take into account groundwater or doesn't take into account air quality, mm -hmm. even if it solves a specific health problem like a disease outbreak, it's not going to result in a healthier community. And as you've pointed out, it can actually have downstream impacts that leave a community worse off. So one of the paradoxes is that while development programs require multi-sectoral approaches, we are structured in a way that we rarely, or we too rarely, approach the problems in an integrated fashion. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and environment might be one of the aspects that gets particularly short shrift as we think about how to mobilize, how to apply resources, 
what particular aspects to integrate. And I think that's especially true because from my view, people often don't think about the environment as an input to the thing they care about. In many, many cases it is. And so we have solutions that can help a problem Let's just take another example. It's just a somiasis. I learned about this one yeah, a couple Bill years Hartz, ago. Yeah, Bill uh-huh. Hartzia. Where mm-hmm. in the Niger River, dams have been put in place that stop the movement of a native shrimp mm-hmm. that migrates up and down along the river. And that's a problem for biodiversity, obviously, because that shrimp can't sustain its populations without moving. But that shrimp is also the major predator on the snail that's the carrier of schisto. And so when the dam went in place and cut off the ability of those shrimp to get to snails in the upper reservoir area, schistosomiasis rates went up around the reservoir. Uh-huh. And so you could imagine treating the symptoms of schistosomiasis, other approaches from a health sector intervention to deal with that disease. It's probably what happened. Exactly. Or you could recognize that the environment is an input to that health outcome, and you could actually manage the dam in a way that lets shrimp move past it. And now you don't even have to deal with the disease because the shrimp are doing it for you. Right. Yeah, that's a great example. But before that dam was built, did anybody know about this relationship between the shrimp and the snails that are the hosts for schistosomiasis? I'm not sure on the timing of that. But there's plenty of examples where we know and we still make the development decision that sort of disrupts the environmental side in a way that's going to come back to haunt us. And don't you think that those decisions get driven by resource constraints? So we may know, but we only have enough money to build the dam. We don't have enough money to put in a sluice gate to allow for the migration of the shrimp around the dam. Sometimes. I mean, I think in some cases, the reality is that the cost is not borne by the investor in that decision, right? So the health cost of the schisto outbreak isn't going to come back to the people who invested in the dam. So the siloing of the economy is contributing to the siloing of everything else. And so you won't bear the burden of that poor decision. So it's not so important that you make it differently. That's one aspect. I think the other aspect is people don't often know enough about the full context to recognize that an alternative choice actually might be more cost-effective for them. So we see that with some things like natural climate solutions, right, where we think about natural environment restoration to help with climate mitigation. Or again, the agricultural cover crop example, where it actually returns benefits to the farmer, but you have to invest in it up front. Why don't we just produce higher productivity seeds instead? So there are enough options on the table that we don't often get incentivized to think broadly about the choice we're going to make. And it doesn't mean that the environmentally beneficial choice is always more costly or slower. It just might not be obvious. Well, I think there's a perception that policymakers often feel that the incentives that drive them are going to be both more time-consuming and more costly. And so there's this perception of trade-offs and of cost benefits. And while I don't think anybody wants to destroy the environment, it one, as you say, where the adverse effects actually come home to roost, they may be downstream or they may be years off. And so they're not a part of that urgent consideration at the time. 
or it's just a perception issue? Or is it just a perception issue? So I think now that that immediate assumption of trade-off or cost or time lag is outdated. I think there are some cases where that will still be true and many where it's been proven wrong and where we have cost-effective options that, again, won't be the top of your head, might not be obvious or readily available in the normal suite of options people are used to thinking about. But in many, many cases now, there's demonstrated evidence that environmentally friendly, supportive, positive options can, in many cases, be more cost-effective and can have returns in the near term. Right. They're not just 50 years out right, right. where we'll see benefits. I'll give you one more example going back to the Bangladesh case where you know, one of the recommendations that we made is really basic about how to do something they're already doing differently. So, for example, there is reforestation happening. Some of the humanitarian responding organizations are planting trees. Mm-hmm. That's both to stabilize slopes in the camps and to start regrowing field wood. They're using two common species that are fast growing and are good for fuel wood and have high timber value. They're also incredibly susceptible to high winds. They will fall over in the next cyclone. So that investment (laughs) is gonna be very short lived. Right. And there's a very available local species that are fast growing and valued by local people and available in local nurseries that can be recommended now. It's so not going to cost explain, more. what explains making the wrong decision? There aren't environmental experts in the response. That inf- the expertise is not available in the time and the place where it's needed. And it's not, it's not valued. It's not foregrounded. It's not invested in, mm-hmm. right? To make sure that the decisions that are made about environmental management that's happening are actually the most beneficial that they can be. So that's a near-term impact. There, it's not a more costly outcome. And it's front and center to something people are already investing in. So it seems like a couple of big takeaways from the examples you've given are, one, the need to do a lot of consciousization and awareness building amongst policymakers about the broader array of options that are available or the greater possibilities for having programs that meet needs, that meet them in a cost-effective manner, but do so in a way that has longer-term benefits for the communities on a variety of dimensions, including environmental dimensions. And then the second is how to deploy the people with the experience and the knowledge to share lessons or share that experience to find or to apply practices that are going to not only address whatever the current pressing problem is, but also to lead to a better stewardship of the natural resources. Absolutely. And I'd say the second one is as much on the environment community as it is on the development community. Why right? do you say For that? to meet in the middle. Well, I think there's still room to grow for you know people in conservation and the environment to be as engaged as they can be in finding development solutions. Do you think that in the environmental community there's a strong cadre of experienced people who know how to work in settings where there's low resources, limited infrastructure, 
poor or at least different types of governance systems. Because one of the things that we see is there is a real capability required, and it's built on experience to work in any of the settings that we're talking about. It's not just that you can take expertise and apply it. I absolutely think there's a large cadre of people steeped in those kinds of settings. So biodiversity is highest where? In the tropics. Right. (laughs) Right. So the developing (laughs) tropics is the the mother load of conservation (laughs) action. And where's biodiversity? Usually in rural areas, right? Far from cities where development hasn't taken away habitat and converted it to something else important for people. And so sort of rural, low-income underserved populations are some of our biggest partners in conservation, right? Community-based conservation is a massive area of work, and there are really incredible experts and leaders and people on the ground in those kinds of contexts around the globe. So I think we're actually really well positioned to work together productively in those kinds of contexts. We've had some interesting conversations recently about last mile wash and whether we can use existing mechanisms for conservation that are trying to move investments from cities into rural underserved populations to improve watershed management Mm -hmm. for downstream water supplies. And those are also usually the least served communities for wash. So we already have relationships with communities. We have informal governance mechanisms set up to interact with those communities and empower them to make decisions about the watershed. Can that be a mechanism for last mile wash? So I think there's a ton of potential and a very live and experienced set of expertise in the environment in those kinds of contexts. So what do you see as the obstacles to that experience and expertise isn't being more broadly applied, that we don't have more integrated approaches? Well, I think we still each start with our own agendas first for a lot of obvious reasons. And that puts us in positions, I think, to all be working still with some blinders on, mm-hmm. right? So even if we're in those kinds of situations, we're still primarily trying to solve problems for biodiversity, which is important. And that's the mission of you know our conservation organizations. And it's increasingly clear we can't achieve those missions without the people who live in those places right. advancing their own objectives. And so I think just taking the blinders off in those kinds of settings is still work to do, whether you're coming from a development perspective or an environment perspective and really putting all the options on the table when we start. Well, this conversation goes a long way to helping us take the blinders off. So thanks very much for sharing your perspective and your insights on this. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. Before I let you go, I have a couple questions that I'm asking all of the guests on a deeper look this year. The first one is, is there something that almost nobody agrees with you on? (laughs) Just one? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm going to say this, that nature is important to your life every single day, no matter who you are. And I say that because, you know, I'm surrounded by conservationists every day, but we're small (laughs) as a group globally. And it's very common for me, you know, to hear people when I say something like that say, well, that might be true for, you know, indigenous people living in the Amazon, but it's not true for me. You know, nature is sort of a sideline out there somewhere far from my life. It doesn't really matter. But as we've talked about today, it's really 
embedded in so many aspects of everything we do every day, no matter who we are. If we eat, if we drink water, if we put on clothes, yeah. if we drive a car, if we, <laughs> if we like coffee, <laughs> if we breathe, <laughs> you know, our, our day has been really dependent on nature. Right. You know, I notice I've asked a number of people now this question, and I think I've agreed with every single person I've asked on the thing that they think nobody agrees with them on. So I think you're joining a distinguished group who may think people don't agree with you, but they probably do. My second question for you is, is there a lesson that you can share with our listeners of something that's been important to you professionally? So I think an important lesson that becomes clearer and clearer to me every year, sort of the more ways we try, is that bringing the environment into development thinking does not have to be slow and painful. That's a great lesson. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It can be fast and actually better for your sort of bottom line of development impact in the end. You know, and I think that that is a lesson that the development community needs to learn. And I'm so happy that you've joined me today to share that lesson and this conversation. So thank you, Heather. Thank you, Patrick. And thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another episode of A Deeper Look. Subscribe to A Deeper Look if you're not already a subscriber. Share it with your friends because these are terrific conversations full of insights and, as you just heard, useful lessons for all of us who care about human development. And be sure to tune in to next month's episode.